people just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Today, it's my great pleasure to be talking with Tash. Welcome, Tash. Hi, Helen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited too that we might have a great conversation riffing off each other. And we had talked about some of the things that we might bring to this conversation that might be a little bit unexpected, like imposter syndrome mm. and what it is to be a woman who's making her way in the workscape when things might not quite fit in terms of who we are and what goes on. So with that in mind, who would you like to kick us off? Absolutely. So I guess you and I both recently discovered that neither of us have imposter syndrome. It's not often that I meet someone who doesn't have it. It seems to be the norm that everyone has imposter syndrome. And it's almost like maybe I'm supposed to actually say too that, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have imposter syndrome because um, you've probably also seen that people will throw out statements like everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. Mm. And I'm kind of like, sorry, no. Maybe there was a point many years ago, but that's not my current reality. Well, sometimes you describe a situation and somebody says to me, oh, that's your imposter syndrome kicking in. And I'm like, no, it isn't because I don't have it. And they look at me like I've got two heads. (laughs) Well, somehow you're not quite a human being because all human beings have this as if it's some kind of rite of passage or frailty. Yeah, yeah. But I guess maybe starting from the beginning, when we think about imposter syndrome, that is the notion that you know I don't belong here people are going to find out that I actually don't know what I'm doing um, which I guess is very common in some situations and I think it would be good to point out that in some situations you are an imposter like I remember when I was you know a, a grad I'd just graduated uni I got a fancy job in consulting I was traveling you know around the country and internationally being put in front of clients being asked to do things I had no idea what I was doing And I thought, I have no idea what I was doing because I didn't. Mm. So I actually was an imposter. So I think there's also that to consider because a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to get imposter syndrome when, you know, I do X, Y, Z. And it's like, oh, is that imposter syndrome or is that just part of stepping up? Yeah, I would agree. I like that notion of stepping up because we're all going to be presented with situations where we might not have what we believe is the expected amount of experience or the expected amount of skill. And for me, there's something nutty or tricky around this imposter syndrome is who's doing the judging or the believing of what the imposter Mm. is. And it seems to me that imposter syndrome is that I if I have it, I'm not believing in myself and or I'm acting in a situation where not having that skill and ability, I feel somehow I'm letting others down because Mm. they had to have a right to believe in me and I'm not meeting that expectation. And like you, I've also had times where I've walked into a situation and I've not yet known about the situation and what's going to happen. But in a world of complexity and changing chaos, is that not the normal human condition? Yeah. Yeah, it's called getting out of your comfort zone. And that's, as we know, where growth happens. Mm. Um, That doesn't mean you're an imposter. It means you can do it. 
it's just not what's familiar. Um, I wanted to share a quote with you that I was a tweet uh, that I read on Instagram the other day around imposter syndrome. And it said, imposter syndrome is a phase that I'm not even entertaining anymore because it feels like career gaslighting. Women and other underrepresented groups aren't suffering from imposter syndrome. They're suffering in a system that wasn't designed with their success in mind. Mm. That really spoke to me because I thought, yeah, like we are telling ourselves as women that we have imposter syndrome when really people are just not expecting us to be successful and the system isn't set up for us to be successful. So it's a chicken egg type situation, isn't it? Yes. Yes, indeed. Mm. And interesting that it highlights about the woman, because it's rare that I hear imposter syndrome be something that a man says. I will hear people say everyone suffers imposter syndrome and, you know, everyone could Mm. cover the male species or anything in between. However, it seems to be something that's seen as woman. And almost I feel like I could be letting down the sisterhood if I said I don't suffer from that, as if it's somehow a malaise that we're all meant to be suffering from, even if it is something that comes from the system around us, but that that's what we have to deal with. And I find it difficult to think, but I'm not dealing with it. I'm not struggling with it. So please stop creating interventions or language Mm. that makes me feel uncomfortable because it's almost like if I said that's not what's going on for me, maybe I'm too big for my boots or it's the tall poppy thing or that I'm not being humble enough. Yeah, yeah. I have come across a few men who have suffered from imposter syndrome and and talked to me about their imposter syndrome, but I agree with you. It's the majority women. And my personal experience has been, I work in mostly male dominated industries. So it tends to come from a more senior man when they're talking to you and they have the realization there's like what you actually back yourself. And they're very taken aback by that Mm. because they are expecting you to have very low confidence, particularly confidence in your own abilities. So an example might be negotiating your salary right? Women are notoriously terrible at at salary negotiations because they don't back themselves and they don't know their worth and they don't stand Mm. up for that. So when you do stand up for that, people are like, oh, she's, she's very direct. And you can automatically get a bit of a reputation as maybe being someone who's, yeah, thinks they're too big for their boots, or maybe you need to be taken down a notch. I fundamentally disagree with that, of course. But yeah, it's been an interesting journey as somebody, because I am usually the person who's sitting there going, I could do your job. Yeah, I could be in that position. I'm going to do that. Why aren't I there? You know, whereas I think most people are like, I don't deserve to be here. <laughs> well, it brings to mind two things, that notion of deserving, which let's cycle back to that in a moment. But also that notion that sometimes, and I'm sure you've heard this, that women, when they are looking at applying for a job, will look at all the criteria and go, uh, I can only fit about 50% of that. I mm. won't apply for it. Whereas men would look, oh, I only meet about 50% of that. Of course, I'm going to apply for that. You know, yeah. whether it's I will figure out the rest or sometimes. Or none of the criteria. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed. A lot. Well, and I think sometimes 
having been on the interview panel side of things, I actually appreciate that often when people are putting the wish list out there, it's like the in the most ideal world, we would like all that criteria and we don't actually expect to get 100% of that criteria. Mm. We're interested to hear from people who have some combination of that criteria. And I think that helped me actually shift from a perspective of thinking, oh, I don't meet all that criteria to think, let me put my foot forward with the criteria that I can meet. And I have been a person who's been happy to say, I'm good at this, I can do that. And sometimes I've wondered, maybe as a female, that people have gone, oh, people overinflate themselves. So anything that you say, we have to discount it. And I'm thinking, no, I'm being 100% honest in my ability. And we could have a conversation about whether that's factual or whether I'm confident in those abilities because I've seen what others have valued from them and have commented on them. Therefore, it's more than just my subjective opinion. It's a relatively objective opinion. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a paradox because we say people overinflate themselves, but then at the same time, we also say that women underrepresent and undervalue themselves. So what are we doing? Are we overinflating or are we undervaluing? Because mm. I would say to you, if you're going in and saying, I can do this, I can do that, I'd say, well, she's undervaluing herself, so she's probably going to be better than that. Or are we assuming you're overflating, overinflating, sorry? So do you reckon there's something about how you show up? Because it seems there's an element here of the self-talk that's going on for yourself. And then there's Mm -hmm. the veneer that presents itself to the world. And it seems to me that imposter syndrome is where you have a great conflict between those two things, not what the objective reality is about your abilities. It's an that yeah that conflict and maybe when you show up there's a kind of emotional wake or vibe around you that comes with it and that's actually the thing that people are picking up on rather than the objective reality potentially there are thoughts out there that say no one is going to be as horrible to you as your inner voice or your inner critic you know you are your own biggest bully Mm. and again I feel like I do definitely have that in some aspects outside of work, but never at work. There are times when I doubt, I think, oh, sometimes you get a piece of feedback that was maybe some negative constructive feedback. And I do take that on board and dwell on it and go, oh, oh, and think about what am I doing to make that person have that piece of feedback? And why don't they think I'm amazing? (laughs) I think it's an interesting point, but I think for the most part, for people, particularly women going into jobs, I think it's just really important that you always back yourself and always know what you're good at. And if you're not sure, ask people, what am I good at? What are my skills? Like what makes me good at my job or what makes me a good change manager or a good other, you know, type of professional? Uh, Because sometimes hearing stuff played back from people that you know and trust is a really, and it also can sometimes highlight things you weren't aware of because you don't see them because they're external to you looking at your behavior and observing you from a different lens, whereas you're observing yourself from maybe a self-critical lens. Something I think that is at play here is context in that when you're asking somebody, what do you think of my abilities? If they're trying to think of like you across all time, across all spaces, across all people, these are the things that I might see about you. Whereas if it was like, oh, now let me think about when you're in a situation of something that's new and emergent, 
well, what do I think about you then? Or when a situation mm. where there's challenge and conflict. And I wonder if sometimes that kind of generic, oh, this is what I think of you, Tash, or this is what I think of you, Helen, that we might look and think that's not actually true because we can think, I can think of contexts where that is not true rather than actually that's meant to be true in all contexts because we're highly contextual beings and who we show up as and what we might feel is fit for the situation. Particularly if we are very much in a serving kind of attitude, we might be thinking, whom am I here to serve? Mm. What will best serve them? And that's not a question for me about here is all of the repertoire and menu of Helen and you're getting it all when in Mm. fact they don't need everything. They might need one Mm. or two things. And so the question about whether I'm worthy is Helen has all of this repertoire. I will be seen as worthy by another party if I'm able to meet their need or help them with what's valuable to them in this moment in time. And that's quite separate from I have this repertoire to did I make a good choice about which parts to show or give or contribute in this moment? Mm. Mm. Yeah, a lot of food for thought there. No, you're absolutely right. I think knowing what people want and what they value and therefore, and also what is their problem that you can solve, right? Because I could go to you and say, mm, Helen, my head hurts. And you're like, oh, here's a Band-Aid. I'm going to put it on your arm. <laughs> you know? And it's then I'll probably solve. think, you, you didn't look grateful enough, you know. Therefore, be like, what is she movie? doing? That's not what I needed. Um, so, yeah, I think we can have a tendency to get caught up in, what we think our best selling points are, but they may not necessarily be what somebody needs from us or wants from us at that time in a professional setting. Yeah, really good point. And I think that probably comes back to part of the conversation we were having before you hit record, which is around listening. What Mm -hmm. do people want? And I think as project professionals or consultants or whatever we're calling ourselves, it is really important to understand what is the problem that I'm solving and what is the value that I can add and what, yeah, just ask people what keeps you up at night. I ask that in almost every interview I attend. Yeah. I'm like, what's keeping you up at night? What is your big, biggest concern about this change? And then I try and think of a way that I can, mm-hmm. you know, tell that person how I'm going to solve it so that they'll hire me. <laughs> you mentioned the value you can add. And I think there's an interesting nuance there because I'm very much a believer that value is in the eye of the beholder. Mm. So I have much value that is intrinsically in Helen that I could add at any point in time in many situations. And for you, the beholder, to see it as valuable, it's when what I can add meets what you have a need for. And it might be the need is actually to do nothing for you. And I think sometimes we have such a notion of if I'm not contributing, if I'm not giving you something, if I gave you that Band-Aid rather than the absence of I didn't do something for you, then you will not see me as valuable rather than actually, yes, back to the idea of I have many things that have value that I can contribute, but you will only see it as valuable if it meets a need at this point in time. And to the point you were saying, if it demonstrates that I listened to you to Mm. get an understanding, so it's not that I was doing it from guesswork. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, maybe that comes back to 
how we view ourselves as imposters because I think if you're unsure what people want and so you're kind of throwing everything at them going I can do this I can do that I can sing I I can tap dance I can Mm. you know sew I can do all these things what do you want it can overwhelm people and maybe reinforce that a little bit particularly because if we were throwing at them tap dancing and they're looking strange (laughs) at us and we think oh see we've discovered you know I'm an imposter it's like they might be thinking well that looks like an interesting dance what I'm interested in is foxtrot and I don't recognize Mm. this tap dancing thing that you're doing Mm. and therefore just because they don't recognize it doesn't mean it's us and it seems to me there's something emerging here of the difference between the kind of the other person and what they're seeing and what I'm doing or seeing in the situation and that this notion of imposture is about some disconnect. Mm. It could be. Maybe it's ironic to people who don't have imposter syndrome trying to deconstruct what is imposter syndrome. (laughs) Well, I do think there was a point in the past where I might have thought So I recognise, for example, I grew up in a rural town in New Zealand, population 10,000. I grew up in a rural town in South Australia, population 15,000. Well, there you go. (laughs) And growing up in this town, I was actually in the top maths class. And just from an age point of view, we're talking about the mid-1980s. And in this top maths class, there were seven of us, two girls and five boys. The boys, the conversation around the boys was university because they would have to leave the town and what university they were going to. The conversation around the girls, me and Janine, was that girls with good math skills went into good working class jobs where math was needed. Janine went to the bank. Helen went to the accountant's office. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, that was kind of how the world was meant to be. And good, actually, that nobody was wanting me to go to university because then I would actually be found out that I wasn't as smart and capable of the boys. And so there was a moment in my time where I do recognise a conversation. And I think that was a conversation I had absorbed just from being around the fact that these five Mm. boys, they were on a track to university. And I remember a year later... I'm working in the accountant's office. I'm walking down the street at lunchtime and one of my teachers sees me on the street and goes, Helen, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing here? And he's like, I thought you went to university. And I'm like, why would you have thought I went to university? And so there was a kind of maybe the reverse of the imposter syndrome and that others were believing in me to do something. And it's not yeah. that I doubted myself in the sense if I had no confidence, just that narrative was not within me. That narrative had not been cultivated or crafted. And I think over the years subsequently, I've been finding those words. And if we use that kind of linguistic, I've been finding the different words and then starting to string them together into a sentence to say, yes, I am a person who's capable of tertiary education. Mm. I didn't go to university till I was 25 years of age and married, which was at a point that the narrative does not fit because Mm. people are like, oh, no, 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 university is a thing you do after high school and you do it when you're single and you do it as an adult. Yeah, and, not yeah, after you've been working for a few years. Indeed, mm-hmm. you do it to be a party animal. And so for me, university became this experience that I did Monday to Friday, nine to mm. five, just like a job. And yes. there, was, there were parts of that that for me became 
an alternative narrative of I'm capable of this. And there would be some people who would look and which looks ridiculous now that I'm in my early 50s, like, wow, you're so brave going to university in your 20s. That's not the way it's done. And so I'm wondering whether my editing of my own life story to think, I will take these moments and I will craft a narrative that I can live with that suits me means that I don't have this imposter syndrome thing that people talk of. There's, yeah, I have a lot to say about that because I was also 26 when I went to university, but I did go. So, and it's interesting that you had that narrative because I had a very different narrative at school it was uni, uni, uni. That is the only thing that you could possibly think of doing. Why would you think of doing anything else? And for me, so I did go to uni, but I was also younger at school. So I think I just turned 17 when I started uni and I was not mature enough to be there upon reflection. But at the time it was like, no, 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 just do your degree. Yeah. Um, and I was not turning up and not handing in assignments and getting poor grades. And so I ended up dropping out, which was great. I wish I just never went. <laughs> and then I worked. And then I decided to go traveling overseas and I then had like quite a transformational experience because I used to be quite shy. Um, I was very shy and not confident in speaking up. Um, I was never not confident in my own abilities, but I think you've had this narrative about not going to uni, but I definitely in the world that I existed in, because I was also working in a bank. I worked in a national mortgage center for one of the big four banks and I worked there for five years. But yeah, there was this whole narrative existing in the world I lived in that you probably just work at the bank and even working in fast food jobs, like you're not very bright. And I was like, I am so, I am going to do great things. And then that trip also made me realize you're a very capable person. What are you doing wasting time in this mortgage center? You need to go back to uni because in order at that time, in order for me to do the things, achieve the things I wanted to achieve, I had to have a uni degree and I was living in Adelaide as well. We only ever lived in South Australia at that point. So I didn't really understand or have my eyes open to how much more opportunity there is in bigger cities in terms of employment. So at that time, I felt that the, my lack of degree was blocking me. So then I went and did the degree. I did two degrees at age 26 and then I was a 29-year-old grad. Hey, we're the same. <laughs> Working in consulting. Two degrees too and became a grad at 29. Well, one more thing I wanted to say was people were telling you you're brave. And I think, how is it brave for pursuing what you want to pursue? Because there's this saying, and it's from the movie Strictly Ballroom, which I love, but it's a life lived in fear is a life half lived, right? Mm. And that's the saying that they repeat throughout the movie. So it's yeah. like, well, who wants to live their life without doing the things that they wanted to do and trying because the worst thing is oh it won't work out and you'll just go and work in a bank again or whatever like that's not a terrible plan b so what have you really got to lose by attempting these things because a lot of people say oh you're brave for doing this you're brave for doing that and it's like it's really a reflection on how scared that person is to do it because they think it's something they would like to do but they don't have the guts well, and when people said to me, I was very brave for doing that, I looked back and kind of thought, was I? Because for me, and similarly to you, 
it was like it was just the next step in a journey it wasn't like I was coming to this big cliff and I was standing on the cliff and taking a big leap but different steps had been taken and I think Mm. maybe the narrative that I'm very aware of is I keep taking a step I keep taking a step I don't stop and think oh I'm frozen here there's nothing going on I'm always thinking what's a small step that I can take and each of those steps adds up over time and so for me also Mm. going to university and it wasn't because I had I had this big dream of going to university or I had big expectations it was a case of I think this university is something I should try I think I'm actually capable of it because I think that's often with women in particular that people expect us not to have an internal narrative I am capable so I've always had a narrative of I am capable there would be times when I'd think okay I'm in a situation maybe I'm not sure if my capabilities just going to meet the situation head on but that doesn't stop me from thinking well let me dip my toe in or what's a small step that I can take to give this a try and I wonder whether for some people the imposter syndrome is they might step into that situation but they're not coming with an attitude of I'm here to learn and try Mm. it's almost like I've come here and I've sold a story to others that I'm ready to be here rather than I'm emerging into this. And therefore it's like, holy heck, we're going to discover that I'm not ready to be here and I've sold them a false bill of goods and now I'm in trouble. Whereas I have always entered those situations thinking, I'm pretty sure I can do that or I've demonstrated I'm capable in other things. So, you know, I'm happy to give it a go. And maybe just Mm. that is the different narrative that meets the moment. Yeah, giving it a go, having a crack, or just adopting that MVP mindset. Like, I'm going to try a podcast, for example. I'm going to do a minimum viable product. I'm going to put out eight or 10 episodes. I'm going to see how it goes. I'm not going to tell people I'm launching a podcast. I'm now a podcast host, you know, which is what we both did. <laughs> now we're both calling ourselves podcast hosts. But at the time, I was like, no, nah, just give it a go. And you can do it that way. And maybe, yeah, yeah just breaking things down into what is a small step that is not too scary for me and easy for me to achieve. It's not completely jumping off the cliff to get myself into that space. At the point before I did my first podcast, I wasn't going around thinking I'm a podcast host. No, People need to trust me and know me as a podcast host. I thought I'm learning to podcast. I'm going to do the first podcast. And yes, after one podcast, I could say I'm a podcast host because I've demonstrated the ability to record. I sometimes think of that notion of maybe it comes from watching some movies over time where people say something like, "If you could you do that thing to save your life? And I think maybe I was watching a Shogun in the, the 1980s with Samurai Warriors and there was this difficult situation and the person had to speak Japanese to get out of the situation. And their Japanese wasn't great, but they knew enough Japanese to survive that situation. So sometimes I look and think, if somebody came along and said, so Helen, are you a pianist? Or Helen, are you a flautist? And I can say, there was a point in my life where I learned to play the piano and I learned to play the flute. Now, Mm. if you put that instrument in my hand and said, your life depends on it, can you produce some musical quality-like thing with this instrument that somebody would recognize as music? I can go, yes. But do I go around going, yay, Helen is a pianist. That's a Mm. badge I want to wear. I'm happy to stick it on my LinkedIn profile. No. And and so there's a difference there for me about I can show up and do something musical like 
but I don't feel the need to put a big label out there and say to everybody, yay, look at Helen. She's got the status of being a pianist. You should all worship her because she's great at this musical ability. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but then what comes first? Like you can do that. And then if you put it out there, people will start believing it and then it maybe will become true as well, right? Well, then it does. It's that notion of at which point did I switch to being a pianist and not being a pianist? Because you could mm. say the minute somebody could put a string a few notes together that somebody recognizes a tune, well, you get to call yourself a pianist. And if you're okay with that, and, and for me, that kind of notion like, well, could I save my life by stringing that together? Well, okay, then I get to call myself a pianist. But there's always going to be somebody who's far more accomplished, far more competent that mm. I might point to and go, oh, but they're a pianist. I'm not a pianist. And I don't think like that. I think I have some skill and ability. They're just more masterful and more competent than me. And I could go there if I wanted to, if I wanted to give the kind of commitment and the time. But I'm not going to go out there if I was to say I'm a pianist. I'm not feeling like, oh, you're all going to immediately conclude that I'm like that famous pianist and I can get on a stage now and, and play a, a great concerto. No, not going to happen. That would be mm. that would be setting me up for failure. Yeah. I think sometimes we get caught up in the titles and that if I say I'm a product developer or a podcast host, that I will be judged by what other people think a product developer is or a podcast host, and I will be found wanting. And that's when my imposter syndrome kicks in. It's probably the lack of imposter syndrome. But when I go to a meetup, for example, because I go to quite a few meetups and I see someone present and I think, oh my God, I really need to lift my game on this. This person's amazing at that. To me, that's a sign of a really good meetup because it's made me realise what are things I need to develop professionally. Whereas I think for other people, they go, oh, that's really intimidating. But I feel like when I go to a meetup and somebody is actually challenging my worldview and they're presenting me with information that I'm not really sure what it means, I take that as a sign of a really good presentation because I'm like, well, if I was challenged, it's, you know, good. It's taking me out of my comfort zone. And, you know, on taking you out of your comfort zone, I actually watched a program many years ago. It was by um, Todd Sampson. He had this program called Redesign Your Brain. And he had an episode about how getting out of your comfort zone actually improves your brain's creativity. And it could be something as simple as eating a food that you don't normally like to eat because it uh, does something to the receptors in your brain. Um, and I foolishly interpreted that as when I go to New Zealand, I'm going to jump off the side of a cliff despite having said I would live my life very happily never doing it, um, which was the extreme, very extreme interpretation of that Indeed. advice. <laughs> but... When you get out of your comfort zone is where growth happens. And so if you can do that to yourself in little, I don't recommend jumping off cliffs or jumping out of planes. Like I did it and, you know, they, they actually have this deal, like it was in Queenstown and they have this deal. It costs quite a lot of money to do it, but because they've already weighed you and, you know, set it up for your exact body weight and done all the safety measures, it's really cheap, like maybe 50 bucks to do a second jump if you want. And, you know, they pulled me back up and said, oh, would you like to go again? And I was like, no no, I've, I've done it. I'll, I'll quit while I'm ahead. Thank you. Um, so, but other people were coming back going, oh my God, that was amazing. I need to do it again right away. But yeah. So what I was saying was just get yourself out of your comfort zone as often as you can. So whether it is going to a networking event where you don't know anyone 
or going to a social event where, you, you know, you don't have your usual support crew of people and you're going to have to actually get out of it. You might make some really good new friends or doing a type of exercise class that you think, oh, I can't do that because of these reasons. Just go do it. Something that occurs to me in the narratives we've been sharing is that you and I see ourselves constantly on a journey of steps, Mm. whereas I wonder if imposter syndrome is people feel they've had to arrive at a place and then judge themselves by how well they arrived at that place. Whereas if you take away that notion of I've arrived and you're in a headspace of I'm constantly taking steps, so there will always be something new and different. I've I've never arrived. So there's no point where you can kind of force that reflection or that judgment. Did I arrive here well? Did I arrive here complete? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people look at people that they view successful and think oh well you know that's just all happened for them and it's like well you may be seeing a picture of success now but it takes a really long time and a lot of hard work and many years of yet incremental steps to get to where you are Um, and something that could be seen as a big part of your brand wasn't always a part of your brand right Mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of cultivation to get it there like example maybe seven or eight years ago, like I was working as a change manager on projects and I'd been the change manager by myself. I hadn't had the opportunity to lead a team for a while. Like I'd been, you know, coaching people here and there and but hadn't had anyone reporting into me. And I was a bit worried that I wasn't flexing my leadership muscles. So then I came across an opportunity to volunteer as a mentor at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre for women, you know, professional women who were seeking asylum in Australia. So I jumped at that chance and went, well, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to develop this part of me that I know is good, but I'm not getting the opportunities currently. You know, Mm. it's harder to seek professional development as a contractor. And now coaching and mentoring is a huge part of who I am as a professional and as a person, but it wasn't always that way. And so again, more advice because I love giving advice, but if you, if there is something that you want to do and people aren't giving you the opportunities, explore what are the other, some other ways that I can build that skill or get that opportunity. And it could be volunteering your time or it could be doing something for free to just get that happening and build that skill before somebody else goes, oh, yeah, you've got a strong history in this to get that opportunity. One thing particularly about that is I think sometimes people think I need to be at the level that I can be accredited and somebody would pay me and I would get certain status. And what I'm hearing about your story is that one of the things that you can do with volunteering is nobody is expecting to pay you or expecting things to be at a certain kind of level or status or competency. And you can be open and saying, this is my first time to mentor or coach. I have some insight and wisdom that I might share. And if you would like, if I bring it down to seeing, I'm just going to be in a conversation where I might have some useful things to share to another person, then I can be present in that moment and grounded in that moment rather than going to a label, I'm meant to be a mentor and a coach somehow in flashing neon lights. And it means I must be accredited here and have 50 hours of that and have demonstrated this. We all have ways that we start something. And to that point about capability, you said about you weren't always confident. 
in our journeys, similar thing for me. I remember being 24 years of age and working with a guy who was very good at public speaking. And he Mm. saw my perceived lack of confidence because it wasn't that I wasn't confident in my abilities, but I wasn't what people might see as gregarious and comfortable with public speaking. Um, And I'm fine with public speaking now. But when he said that to me at 24, that maybe I should consider going to Toastmasters to learn public speaking and getting up in front of people on a stage, I'm like, no, no way, never going to happen. You know, that's just not me. And it wasn't a fear of I'm not capable of that. It's just like, why would I put myself in front of a group of people and expose myself to that kind of criticism? And when I look back now, I look and think, that is one path to something like public speaking. And I rejected that path. That was not to say there were no other paths. And so, like I said, that's when I was 24. Fast forward six years, I'm living in Japan. I've been teaching English in a Japanese high school. It's the end of my tenure. I'm standing on stage in front of 900 Japanese high school students giving a farewell speech in Japanese. And I had this very surreal moment where I'm like, how the heck did I get here when four years ago I was would never have contemplated? You wouldn't even go to Toastmasters. <laughs> well, exactly. And here I am standing on a stage in front of high school students, no less, giving a short speech in a foreign language, no less. And I can't tell you exactly what the steps were between then and there, except I know there were small things that I tried. And I don't want people to think, oh, it's you need to have a very clear vision and you need to take these very certain steps to get there. I just remember that Toastmasters thing would not be a path for me. I didn't shut off and think there's never a point where it's going to happen. Interestingly enough, I do remember being about 15 and having a dream of myself standing in an auditorium giving a speech to people in a foreign language. And, you know, at 30 years of age, there I was standing in a, I, and in the dream, yeah. I was doing it in Russian, but in, you know, here I was in real life doing it in Japanese. And oh, so, wow. yeah. And so I've not been clear in my head what happened. It's not like I went to Toastmasters and did all these official things to then say, and I'm doing air quotes now, I'm a public speaker. I'm mm. worthy of the topic of public speaker. It's like those small steps. And then I turn around and go, I think I can say I'm a public speaker now. You know, if you can stand in front of that many high school students and speak in a foreign language to that question of like, could I do it to save my life? Sure. Did it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are you going to be the best public speaker ever? Maybe not. Probably be someone better than you. Because that's the other thing. There's always going to be someone who's better than you at whatever it is. So better at public speaking, you know, read more books about change management, knows more change methodologies than you do or whatever. Like there's someone out there who's always going to be better. Like you're never going to win the race of being the best, right? Well, it leads to an idea, but you can win the race of being the best you. And so maybe this notion of an imposter syndrome is this idea of somebody has crafted a vision of who I should be. And I don't feel that I inhabit that vision. Whereas maybe Mm. what we're saying is we don't allow others to craft a vision of who we are. Mm. That's our narrative to decide and shape. And you don't have to be the best to get a seat at the table. You just need to be competent to have a seat at the table and know somewhat what you're talking about. And be willing to learn. Yeah, yeah. And have a curious mindset 
and be and have some self-awareness and go yeah I don't have all the answers but I know this and I can do that and therefore I think I'm deserving because yeah I think a lot of people's imposter syndrome is like well in order to call myself this I need to have yeah ticked all of these boxes and it's like no 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 no, no. you don't need to do that and I think as well I don't know why this has popped into my mind but when we talk about receiving feedback obviously we're at our own worst critics if people receive give me feedback and it's either unsolicited or it's from somebody I don't really know very well or I don't really respect them I don't really take it on board I take on board feedback from people obviously who are my managers because that's their job to give me feedback whether I like it or not but also people that I trust and respect if somebody who I really really trust who knows me well gives me a piece of feedback you know that is difficult to hear I will take it on board because it's coming from them Mm. and I think you got to be you're going to get a lot of people telling you a lot of stuff and you don't need to listen to all of it yeah yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, I know that Brene Brown talks about the critics in the arena. And when I first, it's a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. And it's the idea that you don't want the people who are sitting around in the seats giving you critique on what you're doing, that you take the critique from the people who are down getting bloodied noses and dirty yeah. with you. And I found that very powerful. And maybe that has contributed to my lack of imposter syndrome, that there's been a period in my life where I've thought people are going to say what people are going to say. Some might be couched in, quote, feedback because they believe they're in a role to give it to me. And again, that unsolicited aspect. And I get to decide what is relevant to me because they might not know me. They might not know my background. They might not know what's important Mm. to me. They might not know my context. So they can say what they're going to say. And that does not mean it has to come into my world. There's a buffer space where I can decide who are you and why are you sharing this and why is it coming? Is there something in this that I believe has validity for my view of the world and where I see myself going? Because I've had people say, oh, Helen, I think you would make a fabulous CEO and provide me with, you know, what I should do to become a CEO. Now, there's already been a time in my past where I stopped and considered, is CEO something that I would want to do? And I decided, no, it wasn't. And I made a conscious choice not to go down that path for a number of reasons. So them giving me their feedback, or sometimes it's kept like a generous compliment, that's fine, but that's Mm. not going to have validity to me. So I think you make an excellent, excellent point there about where that comes from and what you choose to take on board and how you choose to take it on board. And for me, that comes back to a very self-unlimited idea. As the sovereign of Tasha Unlimited or the sovereign of Helen Unlimited, I am the one who's deciding what comes into it and what shapes that workscape yeah. environment. And you, you absolutely do need to take on feedback. Like you can't ignore all the feedback because that's, you know, that can lead to problems. You do absolutely need to take it on and be open to it. But there's been a lot of times in my career where I've gotten, and, you know, it's and it's often been the more deprecating and um, I'm going to use the word negging, like people are really negging you, like they're, negging your abilities and I'm like I'm not going to listen to that that person doesn't really know what they're talking about indeed 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 and I think sometimes and it comes to a point we were talking about and maybe it was off air before we started the recording that 
why do you actually have a voice or why is there a voice coming towards you and what role is that voice meant to play in your life and that that's for you to decide whether that has validity and whether that's something that you're going to pay attention to mm. Mm. we've had lots of great riffing in this <laughs> a closing thought tash yeah i think if i could recommend a couple of things it's always back yourself do whatever you need to do to quiet your inner critic if your inner voice is very critical and be selective about whose feedback you seek out and listen to and make sure it's from somebody you respect. That would be, I think, that yeah, the, the final three mm. thoughts. And I would iterate all of those and, and maybe expand a little in terms of Back yourself where you are now. Don't back mm. yourself in a view that you think I'm supposed to be. If you've got that shoulda, coulda, woulda kind of thing, like that you're trying to back that, be present in the moment and with a kind of honesty of this is where I'm at. I do see that I have opportunity to grow and learn and that growth might come from other people who I trust giving me some insight to things that I cannot see that right now. And that it's okay to receive that and then decide, does that feel right for me now? Because I think sometimes the feedback question is, it may have validity, but it might not be for now. You might not be in the headspace or the, the, the emotional space to receive that and take that on board. And you are the best judge. And it's kind of a, a different take on that. Back yourself. You will be the best judge for yourself right now about what you can deal with and where you go. And if you don't trust that inner guide and you are letting yourself be guided by other people without that sense of the inner guide playing a discerning role then that's where I think many of the challenges come about this different voice or sense of I'm wanting or lacking or that people are going to think certain things about me. When I reached a point and realized they're going to say what they're going to say. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's just going to be true for all times. Do I know what I'm about and where I am? And can I stand solid in that? And from that basis, perceive and judge and weigh up what people might be saying or what might be going around my world yeah I agree with that wholeheartedly hey this has been an amazing riffing conversation thanks for being my partner and exploring this notion oh thank you for having me it's been an absolute pleasure Helen workscapes are changing everywhere for more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com 